You're listening to the preaching ministry of Redemption Bible Church in New Braunfels, Texas, where we are proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology. We pray that this message will be a blessing to you as you seek to worship Christ, walk with Christ, and work for Christ, all to the glory of God. For more information about our church, please visit redemption.bible. Thanks for listening, and we hope to see you soon at one of our upcoming worship services. But once you have your Bible, turn in your copy of God's Word then to John 6, 22 through 59. John 6, 22 through 59. If you're just joining us, we uh, work our way sequentially through uh, books of the Bible here at Redemption. And so you're joining us in the middle of a chapter and in really in the middle of this book. And you can find the previous messages on our website, on YouTube, on our uh, on podcasts, on our app. They're out there if you want to listen or uh, watch those. Um, and so you can catch up to where we're at here. But let me just ask this as we jump into the text. Next here, how long, look here for a second, how long do you think you could last without any food? Two hours? <laughs> I know, right, we all, some of us, some of y'all like whole snacks in, uh, in your purse, like you have big purses or backpacks or things, or the back seat of your truck is full of uh, all kinds of things, your office, you have a, a drawer in your desk, you know, for uh, snacks. Two hours. Anybody longer than that? Anyone? How long do you think you could go? Three days. Three days? Okay. Yeah. I mean, three hours, three days, three weeks, maybe three months. You know, when you search that question online, the experts uh, really vary in their answer to that. Like, how long can you just last, you know, in comfort or all the way, like, how long can we last to the point of uh, perishing here? But experts, you know, some will say one to three weeks. Others will say one to three months. It just depends on a variety of factors, whether you're hydrated going into it, whether you're staying hydrated throughout it, uh, what uh, vitamins you're intaking, what's the condition of your internal organs, what bodily reserves do you have to fall back on in all of that. It's just kind of a wide variety. But the point is, and the reason I draw this out is because it relates to the text this morning. The point is, without food, we will die. Right? We need food to survive. I can, well, yeah, hello. I can't. And show up to church for the simple truths like this, but it's a, uh, it's a reminder for us this morning here, because even though we don't feel this need as acutely as maybe they did in Jesus' day or in other parts of the world now, Jesus will use this basic survival truth to teach us a basic spiritual truth. And so I want you to just write this down in your notes. I'll tell you, don't worry about the screens for a moment. I want to just tell you this, is that we need Jesus to live forever. We need Jesus to live forever with our God. Without Jesus, we will die in our sin, in our emptiness. And it's this point here that Jesus is making after feeding that massive crowd and crossing over the sea overnight that Jesus will now in our text today come to this synagogue in Capernaum and take the teachable moment to feed us with his teaching. And so I'm going to read the text for us. It is lengthy. And so as we work our way through it, I want you to take note of three things as I'm reading through. You can write it down in your notes or just uh, indicate it there in your Bible. But I'm going to read it. And I want you to take note of the four times Jesus says this statement. Truly, truly, I say to you. 
Just take note of that. But also, secondly, I want you to take note of the times where Jesus says, I am something. I am the bread of life or something like that. Take note of that, secondly. And lastly, take note of the times Jesus says, I will raise him up or I will raise him up on the last day. So with those things in mind, truly, truly, I say to you, I am blank. I will raise him up at the last time. Take note of those. You'll see why they're significant as we go and as I read it. So follow along in your copy of God's word. Here we go. John 6, beginning in verse 22. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to them, him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread for heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. 
This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed amongst themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father has sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. Now, this is God's word for God's people. Now, this is an interesting passage, is it not? Some interesting imagery that we'll have to untangle as we go, but interesting here because Jesus is teaching on our salvation in a way that is so simple and yet also so profound. It's, it's so basic that what he's just saying is believe in Jesus to be saved. Amen to that, right? With the simple invitation in verse 35, where we even get our series theme to come to him and believe in Christ. To come and believe a simple uh, uh, invitation and a simple theology. And, let's, and yet he's also dropping some massive theology bombs upon us. Uh, 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 referring to really the, the, the depths of soteriology and the way that salvation works, laying out our, our total depravity in, in verse 28 of, of our, our, our propensity to work for the things of the Lord, to our unconditional election in verse 44, that no one can come to the Father unless he is drawn by the Father. And the irresistibility of this uh, uh, grace that uh, he, uh, all that the Father gives will come to Christ and the definite atonement that all who the Father is giving will come. And yet the beauty of the perseverance of the saints in verse 39, that of all that are given to the Son, that Christ will lose not one of them. And so there's some simplicity and yet also some, uh, some amazing, deep theological truths about our salvation. And as we work through this passage here that Jesus is teaching on, uh, these, these spiritual truths, I think, will come uh, more clear to us. See, it's so simple. We need Jesus to live forever. And so how do we do that? Well, first, we have to embrace in the opening verses, we have to embrace that we are empty left to ourselves. Write that down in your notes. It's point number one. Here as we take in the scene here that we are empty left to ourselves. Now come to the text here. It says, It's the next day the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away uh, alone. And now I, I read that and reiterate it here because it seems that these uh, folks that uh, are very observant, 
about the details and the things that are happening. And yet, uh, as we go, we'll see maybe they're obtuse about some other things here. But they notice that the boats and the disciples are gone after uh, uh, what had happened the day before. Now, I know it's been a few weeks, or maybe you're new with us. He says then the next day, but what happened the previous day? What's the context? How did chapter 6 open? They fed the 5,000. That's right. Like yesterday, think of what you did Saturday, yesterday, you know. Yesterday, these folks were in this massive crowd hearing Jesus teach, and all of them got fed. And then what happened through the night? Jesus walked on water, what we just saw in the, in the previous passage last week here. And so the next day, this has been a, a pretty wild two days, has it not? And they go now in search of Jesus. They're wondering, well, okay, where is this Jesus here? He's not here anymore. And so their radar goes off. They go and search for him at Capernaum. Capernaum, at this point in Jesus' early ministry, had become like a home base uh, in his Galilean ministry. And he's there. They find him, as we learn, as is revealed away at the end in verse 59, that he's actually at the synagogue place where the Jewish people would come for their teaching and their time in God's word here. And so they find him there. They go in search of him, seeking fame. And when they find him there, they address him as rabbi, a common term there that those that were teaching in the synagogue. And they ask, well, when did you come here? And in so asking, they are calling out to Jesus, and yet Jesus calls them out. He doesn't really even answer their question, but he calls them out with this first, truly, truly, I say to you, you're seeking me just for the food. You are here because now a night has passed and you're hungry again. You just want to see these miracles. And Jesus, just he, he calls them out. He's saying, you're seeking the one who, uh, uh, you're just seeking me for the food, but you should be seeking out and believing the one that was sent from the, the, the Father. They're just showing up like, you know, your adult kids that have moved out typically show up at mealtime, right? <laughs> like, when do, they, when do they, they move out? When do they happen to show up? Man, it must be mealtime. And if it's not mealtime, where do they normally go when they come home? Straight to the fridge, straight to the pantry, right? Not all kids, don't I? Just... But why does Jesus answer the way that he does? See, he's not just trying to be evasive here, but what John is doing is he's recording Jesus' teaching here. He is helping us see uh, some misunderstandings or some uh, wrong beliefs that they had about Christ or about the Lord that now Jesus is correcting in their minds. He's using this, uh, this, this opportunity here to, get to cut to the heart and to get below the surface. Surface. For he begins to, he, he said, you're just here for the food, but do not work for that food that perishes. You're working. They, uh, you know, in a sense, they had done a ton of work to get where he was across the sea, whether they sailed across it, walked across it for food that perishes. You would do all this work for that. But let me tell you, there is something greater here right in front of you. And so now they ask this question, well, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Aha. That's where the misunderstanding lies. See, in their minds, they believe that their works will save them. What must we do then to obtain this food? Wrong question. Right question is, what did God do? 
That's where he takes him. No, no, this is the work of God. He answers in verse 29 here, that you believe in him whom he has sent. And so he's cutting uh, to the heart here. It is not your works. It is what did God do? Apart from him, we are empty. And so they come because of empty bellies. And yet Christ is here to say, I have something greater to fill your empty soul. We aren't all that unlike the Jewish people of this day, though we can fault them for, you know, saying like, well, what? They had this massive sign the day before. And yet we seek to fill up the emptiness in our own lives by also chasing celebrity. Chasing celebrities, chasing the famous, living vicariously through their uh, Instagram accounts or vicariously through athletes or social media influencers where we scroll and scroll and scroll to get our fill and yet as we end out, we, we remain empty. The same way they're chasing the celebrity of Jesus and the food that he brought. We also seek Jesus sometimes just to meet our physical needs. And does God meet our physical needs, church? Absolutely. He's so gracious. He's so good to give us what we need. And yet, sometimes we too are just only seeking Jesus for the food that we get or the feelings of satisfaction that we get, treating the Lord like a welfare worker or a therapist uh, that is here to just make us feel good about ourselves. And yet, does Christ come in and to fill us up? Absolutely. But He is not merely these things. See, we can try to fill up the emptiness in our life by just working and working and working and working and working to get ahead. We work and work to the neglect of them things eternal, where there's an emptiness in our soul that only Christ can satisfy. And see, this is really where then Jesus takes us as we embrace this, uh, this truth that we're empty left to ourselves and we're just chasing the emptiness of this world. And yet it doesn't end on a hopeless note because if we want to have a life in his name, then believe this, believe this, write this down in point two. God gave Jesus to fill then our emptiness. He doesn't leave us in it. We embrace it. Jesus knows that he's getting to the bottom of it and then draws out this point that God gave Christ, God gave us uh, Jesus to fill our emptiness. Look at verse 30. There's an escalation that happens here. Jesus is saying there, believe in the one whom he has sent. And now look at what they have the audacity to, uh, to demand of Jesus in verse 30. What sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? What happened yesterday, y'all? Like, what more proof do they need? Right? He's done all of this, and they're like, well, that's one thing, but our fathers ate man in the wilderness for 40 years. That's a miracle of miracles, is it not? Moses gave us this bread. Moses was a great man. He, for 40 years, fed us daily. Even They even quote the Bible here, Psalm 78, 24. He gave us bread from heaven to eat. The Jesus counters, no, it wasn't Moses who gave you that. It was God. God gave you, your ancestors, those meals for those 40 years. Imagine that, right? And for 40 years, you never have to mini plan. You never have to go to HEB. You never have to do anything. 
And yet, now, God gives you something even better. See, he's getting to the bottom of something. He's unearthing this misunderstanding about the things of God. They, see, in their thinking, Moses was the man. Moses was a man, but he, and, and he did mighty things in the hands of the Lord. He was a mediator on behalf of uh, God and God's people there, but he was not the Messiah. He was not a, 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 a savior for God's people. He himself could not lay down his life to save them. God gave them something better and more sure than what he did there in the wilderness. That's what Jesus is getting at in verse 32. It's truly, truly, I say to you, it wasn't Moses who gave you that bread, but my father now gives you the true bread from heaven. And he says, the, the, he's, it's better right here. And look what they say. Like they seem to want it, don't they? Yeah, verse 34. Sir, give us this bread always. Surely that was incredible. Now God is offering something better. Who wouldn't want that, right? Give us this bread. We want this meal. We want a never-ending buffet from heaven. Sign me up for that and let me rack up the rewards. <laughs> like that's, they, they, they want this bread from heaven always, and yet they seem to want it, to which Jesus then says in verse 35, I am the bread. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Who can make a claim and a promise like that? Can your spouse? Can a pastor? Can a celebrity? Can Moses? Nobody can. See, everything else leaves us empty or disenchanted or exhausted when we leave. All the scrolling that we, that we do online, anytime that we get done with that, like, man, my life is so filled up. I'm so satisfied. No, it's built on the fact that we are unsatisfied. That's why we have to keep scrolling in search of something it can never provide. But only Christ can make the claim and back it up that when you come to him, when you come to him, meaning that you're turning your back on everything else, yourself, uh, all, uh, uh, your own way of doing things, when you come to him and you believe in him, no more hunger, no more thirst. Only he, when we leave Christ, where we always and forever satisfied. As we walk away from the word of God, as we walk away from thinking about the things of the Lord, we find hope and satisfaction that fills our emptiness. It's an astounding claim that God would send Jesus. And yet, verse 36, look at they, but they rejected it. But I said to you that you've seen me, I'm right here in front of you, and yet you do not believe. What else could you need? What other proof do you want? See, look at just what he offers in the satisfaction, an abundant satisfaction in verse 35, never hungering, never thirsting, an irresistible security in verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. 
Anyone who's ever been rejected, anyone who's ever been betrayed, anyone who's ever been fired from a job, evicted from a, a, a place of, of living, anyone who's ever cast out knows the pain of that. And yet, in Christ, never cast out. He comes, the Father brings them, gives them to Christ, we will come. And, and there's just this security. No matter what we've done, no matter what is behind you, secure in the Lord. Look what else. Look at the come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. What is his will? What's God's will? Verse 39. An eternal security, an eternal salvation. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. See, the Lord doesn't get distracted and forget about his children. You're in a family where there's lots of kids and it was just frequent that maybe one of them gets left behind or forgotten about. Not with the Lord. He would lose none of us, but keeping us all the way to the end to where we have the hope of a resurrection with the Lord. This is the will of the Father that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. This is God's will for each of us. To look to Jesus, to believe that God sent him from heaven to save you, to fill that emptiness and to have a hope of eternal life, of eternally living in an abundance of God's presence. And yet too often we just seek our fill from looking for bread in all the wrong places. And where we just find ourselves unsatisfied with where we were at the beginning. And then demanding more from God and forgetting all that He has done. Show me a sign, God. It's like, oh, hello. What has He done? Right? He's gone the greatest distance to save us. He's given us everything we need to grow and be sanctified. He's given us all that we need to keep us to the end. And yet we get demanding, we forget, and then all of a sudden we're caught with this bad case of the grumbly bumps, which where they're at. And you ever had those? I have. Israelites have throughout their history. They have it here. And even for that, the only cure is Jesus. If we're going to have life in his name, then... We have to embrace that we're empty apart from Him and believe that God sent Christ to fill the emptiness. And then look at how patient God is in this next section and our third point that God invites us to the table to eat. Knowing this about ourselves, uh, God then makes this invitation to come and eat. But they're grumbling about it. Look at how verse 41 says these, these incredible truths, these incredible claims that Jesus is making. And it says, so the Jews rejoiced about, he said this, right? They grumble and complain because of what Jesus said about himself. What do you mean? The bread that came down from heaven. And what, do they, what do they try to do? They try to discredit him, right? See, this is Jesus, son of Joseph, his father and mother. Who is he talking about? This father from heaven, he's come down here. I mean, this is, this is Joseph and Mary's son. Verse 40, 
3, then Jesus offers a rebuttal, doesn't he? Defends himself, offers his credentials. Let me actually tell you the signs that I've done up to this point. Is that what he says? No, verse 44. He says, well, one, he just corrects him. Don't grumble amongst yourself. And then what does he say? Then, then he, he just says simply, you know, nope, hey, you'll believe this if God gives you eyes to see it. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Same God who sent Jesus draws his children to himself. So if you can perceive what Jesus is saying even now, then believe it to eternal life. God has given you eyes to see if he's drawing you to himself. Come and believe even now. But maybe you're thinking to yourself, well, that's kind of unfair. Is this, is this unfair of God? Should we vote? <laughs> See, it's only unfair if our starting place is that we think we deserve to be saved. That we think we deserve an invitation to the table. It's only unfair if we think that we are entitled to eternal life. That for some reason God owes us something. This is what's at the bottom. This is what the Jews were misunderstanding. They're like, we're the children of God. We're, we're God's people. He's fed us all along the way. Well, of course we have an invitation to the table. God owes us this food. He's owed us his salvation. And actually, he fed us every day for 40 years, and we've been missing it for the last several hundred years. And so, of course, we deserve this bread from heaven now. But what's the reality, church? God owes us nothing. He owes us nothing. In our sin, we are his enemies. Left to ourselves in our emptiness, we're just going about things in our own, uh, according to our own ways, hating God, weak. He doesn't owe us anything. It's interesting here how he, quote, he says that, and then he quotes from Isaiah 54, 13. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God, drawing our attention back to that section of Scripture in, in, in Isaiah 53, 54, and 55. What is Isaiah 53 about? You know, we read it on, uh, at uh, the Good Friday service. Isaiah 53 is a prophecy about the suffering that Christ will endure. That the Messiah who would come, written hundreds of years before the actual events. Read Psalm 53 if you're unfamiliar with it this afternoon or, or later this week. And see what, how it points to the suffering of Christ. But then what Isaiah goes to in chapter 54 and 55 is two responses to that. Those who will reject it in chapter 54 and those who will receive Christ in chapter 55. And so here he's calling their attention back to that in the rejection of God's people to these truths of the suffering servant, the one who would lay down his life, whose body would be broken and blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. The fact that the Israelites ate that manna in the wilderness... The fact that the Son of Man would come and now invite those who hear to the table of salvation is all by grace. He invites us to the table to come and believe all by His grace. He owes us nothing. 
And yet in the middle of it, we continue to grumble, don't we? That's what he's referring to here. Just he's, he's the bread of life. Yes, your fathers had the manna in the wilderness, but they died. I'm now offering you something better than that where you will not die. I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. And he's referring back to Exodus 16 as well. Remember that section of scripture also? Lots of Old Testament allusions in this, uh, in, in this text and in Jesus' teaching. He's just taking them. He's in the synagogue. They had it. Maybe that was part of the Bible reading that day. But what happens in Exodus 16? Remember our Bible history? Well, let me just reverse it a little bit or ask it this way because we talked about it last week. In what happened in Exodus 14? It's where the Israelites crossed the Red Sea. And so their connection to Jesus walking on water, he being greater than Moses, Moses working that great uh, miracle to deliver God's people from the Egyptian army that was uh, coming down upon them, where Pharaoh had had a change of heart. He's like, no, let's go kill them now in the wilderness. All that after all those judgments that God had unleashed to show his great and grievous judgment and the glory and grace to, uh, to deliver his people out of slavery. And so they do that. Exodus 15, then they worship Miriam, uh, Moses' sister, leads the Israelites in this worship of God for their deliverance. It's a beautiful uh, a chapter. But then a few days go by. They are on the other side of that. They're in the wilderness. And guess what now? They're hungry and thirsty. And so what do they do? Grumble. Exactly what the Jewish people are doing here. They'd been fed the day before. One day has gone by. Now Jesus is saying these things and they're grumbling about it. Maybe you found yourself in this way as well. How do, how do we find ourselves in a spot like this? What well, we learned from Exodus 16, we can pull it from the text here, but grumbling happens. Write this down or take a picture of it on the screen. Write this down. Grumbling happens when we become familiar with the truths of God. See, it is so easy to lose our awe in the signs, the miracles, the things that God has done. It's so easy to just become familiar and to, uh, and to, to, to just like become so common. Like, oh yeah, of course God has done these things. We lose our awe of the grace that was given to us in our salvation. We lose just how amazing that Christ would be our substitutionary atonement standing in our place. But it also happens when we fail to accept the challenges of life. Understanding that we live in a sin-corrupted world. That since the, the fall of mankind, when Adam and Eve sinned at the garden, that our, we work by the sweat of our brow and there's pain and childbearing and we have this enemy who is out to deceive and destroy us. And when we fail to uh, just accept and to walk through the challenges of life, we begin to grumble the Lord. It's closely connected to this third point here. Grumbling happens when we feel entitled as children of God. Where we lose that sense of awe and we uh, are then in the midst of life's challenges and instead of lamenting and turning to the Lord, we start to grumble because we feel entitled like, God, you owe me to get me out of this. Alas, it happens when we forget the work of God. 
when we forget what He has done in our own life, the providential ways that He has provided for us and cared for us through the means of God's people, through all the things at His disposal and His creation, as we forget that His faithfulness throughout all of human history, as we forget the climactic work that God did on the cross through Christ to save us. And it's in these moments where grumbling takes hold. So how do we stop him? What's the cure? Well, what he's calling us to in the text here. To listen to him, to listen to his son, to listen to Christ, to receive his provision in sending Jesus to remember his life and death on our behalf, what Christ has done. And as we take that in, remembering our emptiness, remembering our our sinfulness and our enmity with God, and then looking to Christ and seeing his perfect life in our place, in his innocent death on our behalf that now has enabled us to live and not just live now, but to live forever when our mind is saturated in the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, grumbling begins to crumble away. And that's exactly where Jesus takes him in the last section. So you write this down. If we need Jesus to have life, then here's what we need to do. Eat and drink of Christ. To eat and drink of Him, to live forever with Him. The sense of just taking Him uh, uh, up. Now, look at this here for a second. Verse 52. Again, it's just escalating here. The Jews are now disputing. Not only are they just murmuring and grumbling and complaining, now there's like uh, an argument has broken out. And remember, they're in the synagogue. And so setting a little bit different, but not unlike what we're doing here. Imagine like if now everybody started disputing. What is he saying? How can this man give us flesh to eat? They they can't see it, although they were so observant about the details of how to get a meal. Now Jesus is laying out this teaching, and they're so obtuse to what he's actually saying. See, like, let me just ask this. Let's do a thumb gauge for a second. Is Jesus advocating cannibalism in this section? If you think so, let's everybody thumb gauge, warm up your arm a little bit. If you think, yes, he is advocating cannibalism and eating himself, give me a thumbs up. And you think there's no way, stick your thumb down if you're somewhere in between, you know, just... What do you think? Any no yeses in here? Okay, good. No, of course not. He's not advocating cannibalism. Like that would that's that's ludicrous. So but so the question remains, well then what is he getting at? What does he mean by all of this? His flesh, feeding on his flesh and drinking his blood and true blood, uh, life and, all, and his blood abiding in what what is he getting at here? Well, it's actually quite simple if we just pause and kind of get out of all the gore and the blood and what he's talking about here, we can't survive without food and drink. Where we began. We can't live without food and drink. And the same is true. We can't have eternal life without Christ's death or life and death. His sacrifice was required. His perfect life lived in our place. The only perfect person to ever live all of God's commands who then died an innocent death in our place. We need Him in order to live forever. Nothing else can do that. Moses couldn't do it. Your works can't earn it. No food can cause you to live to the end. Only Jesus, His life, and His death can get us there. 
And Jesus is just using a, a super simple concept, though they're still grumbling and arguing about it. It's almost as if Jesus just knows like how arrogant they are and hard-hearted, and so he uses this like bizarre imagery to kind of like shake them up. Although maybe not as bizarre to them living in a sacrificial system and all the, that would happen there at the temple. The same is true even in a passage like this. It's not only are they confused and can't see it, but it has also caused much confusion over the years in the church. Right? Where even in some traditions, they believe that communion elements which will take in a moment, but where they believe that the communion elements actually become the body and blood of Jesus. Totally missing the point that Jesus is making here, the spiritual point, the imagery that Jesus is making about his body and blood being in our place, a substitutionary, a vicarious substitutionary atonement on our behalf. But in so doing and teaching these things, it's actually perpetuating a works-based salvation that Jesus is calling out in the very passage. See, our salvation, church, grasp this. Our salvation depends totally on Jesus' life and death on our behalf. Christ in our place. And so thus, when we take communion, let's just be real clear on this. When we take communion, it's not an act that saves us or secures us or like stacks up points in the righteousness column on our behalf. But it is our ongoing physical reminder of what Jesus did on the cross and what he won for us. As the bread is crushed between our teeth, we remember that Christ was crushed for our sin for our iniquity, as the sweetness of the juice crosses our taste buds, we remember the sweetness of new life in Christ Jesus, one for us in his death. And in a sense, as we do that, it nourishes our soul as we call to mind these truths and what we believe about God's abundant grace to us and Jesus Christ, his abundant grace to save us, to give us eternal life so that we abide in him and that future hope that he will raise us up on that great day, his future day of his return that we look to. But the invitation is to come and to eat. Not literally, but in a way that we remember what Jesus has done for us every day, coming to Christ, remembering what he has done on our behalf. And isn't God so kind, so wise, to give us that reminder in communion, which we're going to pray in just a moment and, and, uh, and ask him to do work in our heart. But isn't God so kind and so wise to give us this as an ongoing reminder for us of what Christ has done on our behalf? Let's do that now. Let's pray and ask God to search us and to examine us, and then we will take communion together. God in heaven, we uh, confess now that we need Christ to live. We confess that, uh, uh, Lord, uh, we look to uh, so many things uh, that aren't Christ in hopes that they will satisfy us. 
And so even as we begin, as we, as we respond to this word and to Jesus' teaching here, we first begin by just asking you, God, search us, try us, examine us, see if there be any way contrary to you and to your ways uh, in our life. Lord, if there be any who even now you are uh, uh, doing this initiating work. There's some who've never responded to you, Jesus. Whom you are drawing in. Would you bring them to salvation even now? That they would come and believe. Repenting of their sin. And trusting you now, Jesus. For all of us, Lord, we need your help. Your help to examine. Your help to, uh, to, to, uh, to walk with you. Or maybe we've neglected you. You who are the bread of life. The living bread. yet even now, God, we celebrate. Thank you for your word. Thank you for these elements. Most of all, thank you for Christ. It's in his name that we pray.